0: Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor in chief of the New Books Network, and the following interview is being republished with permission from the excellent podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. That's Psychologists Off the Clock at offtheclockpsych.com. I hope you enjoy the interview. And it came down to this: that love is the thing that matters. And so, I think psychological flexibility helps us get over the barriers to connect with others in a way that's values-based and kind to each other.
1: That's Dr. Stephen Hayes, and this is Psychologist Off the Clock. Ever wonder what psychologists talk about over coffee? I'm Dr. Diana Hill, a clinical psychologist in Seaside, Santa Barbara, where I specialize in values and mindfulness-based approaches to therapy.
2: And I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, where I specialize in rehab and health psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy. And from coast to coast, I am Dr. Yael
3: Schoenbren, a clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University specializing in
2: evidence-based
3: relationship treatments.
2: In this podcast, we bring psychology research into practice by discussing topics in psychology with experts in the field and with each other. You'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology
1: that we use to flourish in our own lives. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock.
2: We are very excited to bring to you the interview that we have for today, and we, it's which is one, part one of a two-part series. So today we have Dr. Diana Hill, our co-host, is interviewing Dr. Stephen Hayes about process-based cognitive behavioral therapy. Very excited to have him on. And next week, we are going to release an episode with Dr. Stephen Hayes again, part two, um, along with his colleague from evolutionary science, David Sloan Wilson.
1: This is a really inspirational and powerful episode because we have one of the most influential uh, people in psychology that's really changed the course of psychology in the past few decades and really changed our lives. I know all three of us have been impacted personally by his work. And it's really exciting because Stephen Hayes talks not only about big picture things like the future of psychology and where it's going to go and how he's going to, he hopes to shake things up quite a bit, but also how he applies these principles in his own life as a parent, um, as a human on this planet.
3: Right. And I think even if you're not sort of in the know in the field of clinical psychology, the the wisdom that comes from this man is, is just eye-opening. And... Um, Amazingly, we caught him on the day of his 70th birthday. So while his wisdom is usually quite powerful, it was really just oozing out the, it'll ooze into your earbuds um, because he's really, you know, I think at a very interesting point in his career where he's just had this very long, enormously productive career. Um, And he's still making huge contributions, but he's also, I think, reflecting on where he's been and also where he'd like the field to go. And so I think it's just an
1: incredibly powerful episode, and we're really excited to share it with you. Stephen C. Hayes is Nevada Foundation Professor in the Behavior Analysis Program at the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada. An author of 44 books and nearly 600 scientific articles, he has shown in his research how language and thought leads to human suffering, and has guided the development of acceptance and commitment therapy, or ACT, a powerful therapy method that is useful in a wide variety of areas. His popular book, Get Out of Your Mind and Into Your Life, was featured in Time Magazine and for a time was the best-selling self-help book in the United States. Dr. Hayes has been president of several scientific societies and has received several national awards such as the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies. Google Scholar data ranks him as among the top most cited scholars in all areas of study, living and dead. And today we're going to discuss a groundbreaking textbook that Stephen Hayes co-edited with Stefan Hoffman called Process-Based CBT, the Science and Core Clinical Competencies of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Welcome, Dr. Hayes.
0: I'm glad to be here with you. Looking forward to our conversation.
1: Great. And I thought maybe we could begin just talking about ACT in general. Uh, Our audience is both professionals, uh, but also the general public. So they may need some orientation. And you're really known as the founder of ACT or Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. ACT is really a zeitgeist right now. People want it and they eat it up when I work with people in practice. And maybe you could talk a little bit about ACT and maybe what makes it so powerful.
0: Yeah, I actually, uh, just to start off uh, in the sideways, usually don't allow people to call me a founder, even though I did sort of start it just because so many hands have been involved for so many years and it seems churlish to to be grabbing at it. So I say I'm a co-developer, a a co-founder, but there's a large community that's uh, developed these ideas over 35 years. And what uh, ACT is, is a combination of acceptance and mindfulness processes and commitment and behavior change processes that produce... Or, at least, intend to produce psychological flexibility. And what it does is it brings together into a, a kind of single set some of the most powerful processes of change that we know. And by focusing on processes instead of just protocols or methods or techniques, it sort of frees us up, both as practitioners, but also when you're using it, to be able to apply it to what fits in the moment and what your particular goals are, and frankly, also what your strengths and weaknesses are, because we've learned that the six uh, key flexibility processes that are targeted fit together to form a, a whole set. Part of that's due to evolution science, which may go beyond this conversation, but I'll do, I'll do a shout out for that because I know we're going to do a podcast a little later on with one of your co-hosts and uh, my colleague David Sloan Wilson on that. But maybe, maybe I could walk through what those six flexibility processes are. And then uh, people would understand uh, why ACT is such a powerful combination and also a bit about why it produced a lot of uh, upheaval when it first became popular uh, after introduction of it in book form, 15, 16 years after it was actually developed because we did a lot of work uh, out of sight and out of view, careful work publica- publications and you know, assessment devices and uh, components and, and so forth, and then, uh, uh, you know, since then, as, as you say, it really has been widely embraced and there's hundreds of thousands of, of people who have uh, uh, received uh, ACT as a therapy and millions of people who've uh, purchased ACT books and so forth. So what ACT does, what I say it combines acceptance and mindfulness processes and commitment behavior change processes. People may know the, the way of thinking about mindfulness as a as paying attention in a particular way, non-judgmentally to the present moment, kind of an open way, and those processes, plus an additional one we focus on, are really what we mean by those acceptance and mindfulness processes. It's that combination of looking at your thoughts with a sense of dispassionate curiosity, but a little bit of space so that your thoughts aren't structuring your view of the world but doing it out of sight and out of view, which is what happens most commonly. Uh, Opening up to your own sensations, memories, emotions, uh, and receiving the gift that's inside them. Even when they're painful, they are, uh, are part of your history, and something in your history is projecting into this moment. That's a very useful thing to know, and it's very costly to not know that. And then being able to attend to the present moment, flexibly, fluidly, and voluntarily broadening and narrowing your attention, shifting or holding your attention to fit what you're trying to accomplish, but doing it from this point of view of, uh, the, uh, kind of the observer, this transcendent sense of self of the, the person who showed up somewhere on age three when, you learned that I here now are aware and that others have uh, that same sense of awareness, but from a different perspective or point of view. So it's a combination of perspective, taking skills, coming together to produce a sense of, um, awareness, not awareness necessarily of anything. That's the attentional part, but simply the capacity to be aware. Those are the four acceptance and mindfulness processes. And what they do, the first two, and then I'll get to the the commitment process in a second here, but the first two, what they do is they open you up to access in a more, a a more um, flexible way, your own thoughts, feelings, memories, and bodily sensations, and then to fit it to the current situation inside and out and to do it consciously. And those four processes of uh, cognitive diffusion acceptance, a flexible attention to the now, and this self sense of self, do that. But then all of that would sort of be a dead end, not a dead end, but it would not really be about anything, uh, uh, unless it was connected to the uh, last two, which are, what are the qualities of being and doing that you wanna put in your life? Another way to say it is, what do you care about? Another way to say it is, what are your values? of not just your goals we're we, we're used to that our problem solving mind gives us lots of goals but i mean the deep yearnings that we have for how we want to live our lives and 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 what we want that to manifest and then finally organizing your behavior in a way that your habits become larger and larger integrated patterns organized around your values which we call committed action And what that does is gives you the motivation, but also the means to connect into all the vast amount of knowledge that we know about how to create behavior change. Uh, It's not like we've, uh, you know, act as uh, uh, coming into this field without support from all the other things that we know in all of these areas. So psychological flexibility is uh, being able to uh, uh, bring uh, your whole self into the situation and to notice your thoughts and feelings that are occurring, but then orient your attention towards what you want to accomplish in the situation and persisting or changing in behavior in the service of your chosen values. Turns out that set of processes, uh, which I said links to evolution because they're increasing variability, establishing selection criteria working on how to retain that, which in the area of psychology is practice and pattern, and then fitting it to situation. And that's exactly how evolution works, variation selection and retention in context. That set, those six, predict more things longitudinally, more things over longer periods of time uh, than any other thing that I know of in psychology, and they can be moved. It's not like, you know, people have this personality, get that, or... Other personality get this. It's it's something that you can focus on and change. You can learn and and uh, how to to interact with the world in that way. And so um, I think it's fits what we need in the in the modern world. But it also just uh, hangs together as a scientifically uh, valid model of behavior change. Sorry for the long answer. I won't answer so long each time, but you asked a big question.
1: Right. It's a big question, big answer. And as you mentioned, ACT was really built on the back of CBT and the principles of CBT. But at the time that it was developed and when I was learning it in graduate school, it felt very much like a departure from CBT. (laughs) And it felt like, okay, I can't really fully tell my CBT professor that I'm learning this new thing and that when he's talking about challenging thoughts that I'm doing something different with thoughts. And your book, however, is really a bridge back between ACT and CBT, and it feels like it's a snapshot of a moment in time when you've created something that everyone can get behind. Do you see this as an important moment in the history of ACT? Well, and no, this, you I, know, how is
0: you that? Know, one of the things that's happening, and you we're going to talk about process-based therapy, is, is ACT was... A little bit ahead of its time mm-hmm. uh, and it wasn't just act I mean DBT had some of that same disorienting quality uh, mindfulness based cognitive therapy had some of that same disorienting quality it was maybe not so so disruptively because some of the terms more were familiar but the nose was under the tent you know the camel's nose there of uh, bringing mindfulness into CBT and now there's a whole fruit nut seed mix of approaches but uh, act emerged out of a behavior analysis and behavior therapy, but with sensitivity to what had happened in the arc of the behavioral and cognitive therapies. So it was always part of the CBT family. But it was not traditional CBT, and especially not in the idea that really the core of, cha- of, of clinical change happens from changing the form or frequency or situational sensitivity of, of thoughts. So there, you know, I don't want to turn CBT in into a cartoon, but the, the second wave so-called of CBT really emphasized too much, I think, detecting, challenging, disputing, and changing your thoughts. And while that's not, there are ways of doing that, that are actually helpful. When you do meta-analyses, you see, you know, that's not the powerful part of those protocols. And the other part is you're very close to the edge of a cliff. And I don't know how many times I've seen people who've been through a course of CBT who will say to me things like, well, you know, I tried to get rid of that thought. I really hard to but it just kept coming back. And, of course, that's not really what CBT clinicians are trying to do is teach successful forms of thought suppression and thought avoidance. They were trying to establish healthier patterns of thinking. But it turns out healthy patterns of thinking aren't defined simply by thinking good thoughts or rational thoughts or or logical thoughts, or any of those things. They're defined by your ability to orient your behavior towards thoughts that are useful to you. And that was not the focus. Or at least that was not uh, what came through. And when you put psychological flexibility in there, some of the traditional CBT methods now can be seen in a different light. All of them still, that are empirically validated and powerful, still have a place. And so really, it's kind of a it was in part of a process of changing CBT itself. And then when the other foot hits the ground with process-based therapy, uh, then that the the uh, arc of that transformational change becomes more evident.
1: So what is process-based CBT then?
0: Process-based CBT is simply letting go, really letting go of this idea of protocols for syndromes, which, is based on a scientific fiction that syndromes uh, are scientifically uh, valid and plausible and progressive ways to to uh, organize human suffering in terms of latent diseases, find out what they are, and organizing sets of techniques uh, whatever, or other kinds of intervention strategies that would move that. Instead, uh, what process-based therapy Asks, is what are the biopsychosocial processes that are most important with this client given their particular goals? And how can we best change them? And it basically says, let's not take these trademarked um, collection of techniques oriented towards these five out of nines and four out of sevens, these cubbyholes of human suffering, which are based on a I think, a a, um, a failed agenda, a scientific cul-de-sac of latent disease models, and instead move directly towards processes of change that are conceptually valid, that are predictably valid and that have treatment utility. And if you you do that, you open up clinicians to all the things that are evidence-based bringing in kernels and elements to fit the particular needs of the client, but not, you know, uh, some sort of vapid eclect- eclecticism. Instead, by using models that organize these broadly applicable processes of change, such as the psychological flexibility model that I just described, you're able then to draw whatever uh, can move those processes into your practice and help liberate human beings without this problem of name brand and uh, categories and labels and certificates and anointings and all of these silly tithing to founders and the the endless uh, grasping at immortality coming out of the scientific labs as if 50 years from now, anyone's gonna give a darn about what it is that we're doing in these trademarked therapies. And what we need to be doing is putting processes that liberate human lives into human lives. And I'm confident, actually, that the model underneath ACT and maybe ACT itself will survive that transition. But if it doesn't, good riddance. Good riddance. And because we'll have made progress in alleviating human suffering, if we do a better job of changing the processes that create human suffering.
1: So instead of a bookshelf. So if you look at my bookshelf in my office, you'll see exposure for OCD, exposure for body dysmorphic disorder, exposure for social phobia, exposure, you know, and on and on and on, on and on. on. What would that book read?
0: Well, I think it might include uh particular processes and uh, evidence on the kinds of components and kernels and procedures and metaphors and exercises and and conversations and medications that are helpful short and long-term in moving those processes. And it would include models that simplify uh, these broadly applicable processes of change. you need models you need to simplify right now we have about 130 processes that somebody has made a case for as being a broadly applicable process of change Uh, you know be very hard to learn such a list it'd be even harder to remember it and apply it Uh, so we need theory and we need models but they have to be constantly vetted against the purpose of models which is to which is to accomplish these useful ends of uh, prediction and influence of being able to intervene and do something that will change and lead to outcomes. So I think what you would see are books of different models of change. Now, normally people would say of how to organize transdiagnostic processes. The reason I'm not saying that word, it's an obvious word to say, is it has one foot firmly inside uh, the DSM or ICD, in other words, inside the latent disease model, and another foot inside this broadly applicable process model. So instead, and which really is not wise because that gulf is w- widening. You don't want to have one foot on each side of a gulf as it widens. It's just not a very wise place to be. Uh, you know, I think what you're going to uh, see instead are, are, are people really focusing on processes of change as the primary focus, individually applied. The implications of this are so big, and uh, some of it's back to the future, some of it's stuff that was there in the early days of behavior therapy, but we didn't have the technology, the methodology, the data analytics strategies, the measures. Some of it is brand new, and frankly, if you were to buy the the process-based CBT book you're just seeing the beginning of a series of things that flow out of this. And so it's going to be a fun ride. Um, there's a new article in uh, Clinical Psychological Science that lays out more of what, where Stefan and I are going. And there's a, a, another article that we're writing which I think really kind of breaks the mold. And another book that we're producing on essentially alternatives to the DSM. And so I think we're headed towards a day where the individual is now the focus. Functional analysis is the focus. Process is the focus. And I think your bookshelf will have plenty enough new and interesting books there without shoving people into the cubby holes and thumping them over the head with big, thick protocols where the – you know, the, the book that describes how to get adherence and competence is thicker than the book describing how to change people's lives. And by the way, you have to pay $500 for step one of a four-step process, where, and then you'll get the anointing and the tattoo. You know, this is just not where we should be, especially the evidence-based therapies. Enough is enough. Let's cut to the chase of where it really makes a difference for people. Get out of her own way with all of this self-aggrandizing narcissism and clutching at immortality and empower people. Let's do that.
1: Something that is uh, brilliant about ACT and you're alluding to is this reticulated model that it changes over time based based on research. And I think something I've always been curious about with you Mm -hmm. is how can you love something so much, but hold it so lightly. And I think about that sort of as it alludes to parenting too, because you clearly love this work and act, but you yeah. hold it so lightly and allow other people to tinker with it.
0: Absolutely. And, and, you know, well, I think there's a couple of things that really help with that. And I, and, and to be honest, I'm a, I, well, I'm flattered by the question. I'm a little embarrassed by it because there's a part of me that, you know, I can feel that graspy thing. You know, I can feel the, the uh, pride when people say the word act and, uh, you know, but, but, uh, there's already about 20 different names for act and, you know, people call it acceptance-based behavior therapy or, I mean, Joe Sorochi was a president of our society calling it mindfulness, mindfulness-based emotional intelligence training. So the way that we did this is, is, is we took the psychological flexibility model. We applied it to our own work. We applied it to the organizations that support our own work, and we created cultural traditions that support the hard work of getting out of your own way. Because, of course, human beings are grabby because the mind is telling you if you don't do X, Y, Z, you're going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to be. It tells you that. You know you're gonna feel so great about yourself when all oh, the people applaud and realize how wonderful, wonderful, wonderful you are. And and for the rest, of, you know. But we look at these little, you know, somewhere in Egypt there's a small a pyramid with a, you know, a, an inscription. You know, the one that says something like, "Here lies, or the particular pharaoh was, you know, see this and weep at his greatness and grandeur." And we laugh at it. We look at it and we just laugh at it. It's a joke. Well, don't put yourself in a position to be a joke. So how how do we do it? Diffuse from your own stories. Accept your own difficult feelings. Connect in consciousness with others and and lift them up. Do that out of a values-based journey that's shared with others. And commit yourself to that. I mean, literally down to the point of written commitments. If you are going to be named a recognized trainer and act through ACBS, you go through a whole process. And the very last part is to sign a values statement that the, 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 the trainers themselves generated, which basically says you're going to give away your stuff. You're going to. Make your innovations available to others for for low cost or no cost. You're not going to make any special or proprietary claims. You're not going to certify therapists. We eschewed to certifying therapists. Well, nobody else is doing that. We have a formal thing. You cannot certify therapists. Why? Because if you certify therapists, guess who's on the top? The founder's on the top. And guess what happens when the founder dies? The disciples take over. Guess who wants to be a disciple? People who are not bringing their full creativity to their work because they have ideas that are better than what we have now. And so why set it up like that? So we control the recognized trainer process by the community. And, And part of it is we put into it cultural traditions That help us do the right thing people want to do value-based things as treatment developers researchers as clinicians Uh, But it's hard sometimes because the ego gets in the way the conceptualized self gets in the way Thoughts and feelings get in the way. It's not any different than anything else And so we've created a community that has special qualities if you ever come and you have it to act trainings or even especially the world conference and so forth It isn't but about 20 minutes before people start saying things like, this is interesting or there's something about this group. I can't quite say what it is. And what it is is people come over and say, hi, where are you from? And if they're analytic or gestalt or, you know, it doesn't matter. What are your ideas? And let's talk. And, you know, it's not this kind of act uber alles. and here's the – you have to dump all your, you know, check your mind at the door and we'll train you. Uh, it's just not the way to treat human beings and empower human beings. So, um, again, long answers. I'm just turning 70 today. and uh,
1: Oh, my gosh. Happy birthday.
0: The older, <laughs> hey, the older, the older <laughs> you get, the more you start sitting on the porch and telling like, long stories. So, grandpa's into a story again. <laughs> but, But the short answer to it. is that that you apply the model to yourself. You apply it to the groups you're in. And when you do that, if the model is powerful in creating uh, thriving and prosperity and helping us deal with problems and avoiding cul-de-sacs, well, why wouldn't that apply to you and to your coworkers? And if it doesn't, well then why are you so happy about this model and it needs more we're human beings too, so last time I checked. So, uh, you know, uh, it's turned out to be very um, useful. I hope I'm not saying it too pridefully because loops within loops within loops, you can fuse with anything, even with the thought of how diffused you are. Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate applying the model to myself and, uh, and using that model as a therapist, but also as a parent and as a partner and a daughter. And I get uh, tremendously curious for you as a parent. You, you mentioned that you have four kids age 12, 12, to 48. Is that right? The age range?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's right. Yeah. And my eldest is, will be turning 40. By the end of 2018, it'll be 13 to 49. But yeah, yeah that that's a pretty big gap in yeah. our,
1: and and what we focus on in parenting is sort of a snapshot of what what matters most to us. So you can you. you can you tell me about like pare it down for me? How do you apply these principles in raising your own children?
0: Well, train sex, train flexibility skills in the in, in the people you love, and the single best way to do that is to model it. You do parenting out of. This perspective taking place of seeing the consciousness that you're fostering in those moments and taking the time to hear about the emotional life of your children and the thoughts that they're having over time in an age appropriate way and teaching them gradually the ability to focus on what's important according to themselves, not just according to you, it's not just following the rules, their values yes, of course, are being socialized by you and by the culture. But the thing that they're taking away is not just what you say. It's what you do. It's where you come from. They can sense what you view as important by the time that you spend or the questions that you ask. And then helping uh, children over time be able to organize their behavior on what they care about. And so if you look at the data – on parenting, with an eye from psychological flexibility, uh, several things that are classic, you know, kind of emerge. You know, these kinds of things, like for example, you need to monitor your children. You know, the d- discipline needs to be graded and reasonable. Has to be consistent. You've got to uh, engage your children and uh, with um, uh, a kind of a, a process of learning what they're feeling and what that means and and what they really care about. And we now have measures of parents, psychological flexibility in that role. And what we've, what have we found? We've found that the authoritative parents, parenting style that is widely talked about in the parenting literature correlates quite significantly with parental psychological flexibility. We know that parental psychological flexibility can be changed. It can be increased. And when it does, people do a better job of actually engaging in the parental skills that they learn about in those self-help books or those organized programs. And the psychological flexibility of your children are predicted by your psychological flexibility. If you get more flexible, they get more flexible. If you get inflexible, they get inflexible to the degree that you, there's good data now on things like this a potentially traumatizing event happens in, you know, a horrible storm, a school shooting, something really difficult. Somebody dies. Uh, what predicts the outcomes for the children? It's the psychological flexibility of the parents. So, you know, we are setting up our kids for failure or success. And if you really care about this, then the the process should be start with yourself. No faking in this one. If they see you run when it's hard, if they see you run from your own emotions, if they see you constantly buying into your thoughts, if you model that, they will do that to their harm. But when you're getting – you are now, you do not have to be, you know, super mom. You don't have to be, you know – Act ban. Hmm. You know, I mean, the Dalai Lama's meditated for how many years and he says he still gets mad. So come on, be reasonable. It, it, what they need to see is that you care about it, that you orient towards it, that you're trying. And then once you do that, you can take the next step of fostering it in others and you can take the next step of extending your flexibility. Uh, to the social level. So for example, quick, I know I'm going long, I'm sorry, but take acceptance. When you extend it, it becomes compassion. Take diffusion. When you extend it, it becomes a conversation where you really are interested in other people's ideas, but you allow them both to be held in, uh, simultaneously and in, in, in things that are more useful emerging. When you extend perspective taking, you have this integrated sense of we, not just me. You know, when you extend values, you have agreements uh, uh, and uh, and social commitments and understandings between people that lead to cooperation. And when you set up behaviors around that, you've created a, a little mini culture inside your own family or your clinic or your school or your church group uh, or your town or whatever unit there is. And so um, uh, I think it's a it's not like a set of, a rule book. You know, here's the act rule book about how to be, but it is a set of processes that we now know will empower being a parent, and will empower your children's lives.
1: Yeah. Which of those processes do you struggle with the most?
0: Oh golly, I think it's uh, you know, uh, frankly, uh, you know, I can uh, I can feel a little guilty when I notice it. It's just simply. Uh, attention I mean my attentional flexibility uh, is pre- pretty good under some circumstances but not others and you know I'm a bit of a workaholic a lot of my work is organized around things that where I'm trying to do something that is useful to people around the world and at my worst I can become so focused on that that um, I forget to broaden my attention with enough regularity that I don't miss uh, the moments where my my kids really need me. I just had uh, my birthday celebration over the weekend, and my four children came uh, from uh, wherever they were, and we uh, sp- spent a couple of days together up at uh, Lake Tahoe. And they've my uh, I have a twelve year old, certain to be thirteen, and so we'll see how he's developing uh, develops. But he seems like he's going very very well. And, had some challenges all my kids have but i'm just so proud of where they've gone where they've ended up so somehow or another uh i think they've seen through even the times when i've uh, when i'm inattentive and when i'm not sufficiently keeping them uh, in my mind because uh so these other processes are powerful enough that they uh, they know that I love them, and they've—they all are consciously, actually, will talk about it. Are working on their own psychological flexibility, not so much in that terms. I haven't, you know, done therapy with my kids or anything like that. I'm just saying we talk about what we care about. We talk about what gets in our way, and we talk about how hard it is to be human. And uh, you know, we show compassion towards each other. So uh, I think it's a it's a pretty good word for that. Uh, you put those pieces together, it's creating a loving space inside the family. And, um, I think that that bottom line is what makes the difference. I mean, I have a little thing, as you probably know, if I email you, I have a little line there saying love isn't everything. It's the only thing. And, um, I did a, a 70th birthday, um, uh, speech to my kids and that's basically what i did i i just walked them through what i think is really important and you know you get this kind of age you do know how many times you'll have to, to give speeches to your kids and it came down to this that love is the thing that matters and so i think psychological flexibility helps us get over the barriers to connect with others in a way that's values based and kind to each other.
1: Thank you for sharing that. One of your daughters is actually a a feminist. And when I was, you know, thinking about this episode, we're three women aware that we're three women psychologists. And here we are going to Steve Hayes, our guru. And (sighs) And this sort of this model of the field of psychology is statistically made up of more women um, than men, but most of the leadership positions are held by men. Oh, and, and I'm just curious about what you want to say to women in psychology and, and also minorities, you know, women of color, uh, other minorities about how we can empower ourselves.
0: You know, I'm, I think ACT and psychological flexibility has a piece in there that's of importance. And we've done the homework, we know some of what leads to stigma and prejudice and so forth. We know a bit about how to empower uh, people who have been on the receiving end of stigmatizing messages. Um, That we're in a a process worldwide of digging down to privilege. And privilege is uh, toxic in part because it can't be seen by the people who are privileged and so in the case of gender you know the men are privileged and they don't see it and you know i fortunately have a, a person who loves me and uh, you know despite my own uh, limitations uh, who'll stay with me when i'm uh, mansplaining or uh not or operating out of assumptions that are not really ones that I would want to adopt, or just ones I've been socialized into. And so it's a kind of form of fusion if you think about it. the problem of fusion is that it's a set of kind of kind of a cognitive structure that once you adopt it, not even that you consciously adopt it, the world organizes around it, but the process is invisible. So if 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 you assume that you've got the answer, and you assume that you're the one who should explain, etc., you constantly talk too much. You constantly ride over um, the opinions of, or feelings of others. And so, you know, I'm working hard on my uh, white male privilege, and uh, I'm horrified by it every day, every freaking day. I'm horrified by it. Um, But uh, that doesn't mean it's gone away. It just means I'm on a journey, and I don't know how far I'll go. I'll let others judge that. Maybe uh, of the eulogy, you can ask Jackie what she thought about the journey. But, um, you know, so coming back to the other part of what you're saying, I would I just say, time's up, and time's up. Um, the men need to not get off the stage, but they need to move to the side. And it isn't just a matter of letting others speak. it's it's something different is gonna happen. Can I give you an example? Yeah. Uh, my wife wanted to do an act boot camp for women, and it's occurring. Uh, it's occurring this week in San Diego And uh, she's brought together an amazing group of women. It's all women trainers. and there'll be probably about 80 people there or something. I wish it was more, but you know it was a good solid crowd for the first time out. But some really cool things are happening there. For example, my daughter Camille, the feminist you mentioned. If you want to see some of her feminist rants, go to ladytroubles.com or read some of her uh, writings. She's actually becoming an author of some note. Um, She's going to come and do a reading from uh, some of her writings. Uh, Some of it's during the breaks. Some of it's, I think, during the particular time. There's a a person who's going to be... uh, you know there's gonna be some uh, musical performances. There's gonna be you know times for people to gather and share. There's going you know it's not run the way men would run it. Good <laughs> Good. You know it's much more. it's it has a feeling. If you were to say it, I would say it's kind of more participatory. It's less hierarchical. it's it takes time. You know, there's going to be a yoga session at the beginning of the day. It's holistic. Perhaps you'd say it's more emotional. Wouldn't the world be better if more things were like that, including for the men? And if I could do a little bit, you know, don't – I think it's important for us not just to, like, blame and shame men because it doesn't produce – any more flexibility on their part. And then the same thing with white people around issues of color or straight folks about issues. Uh, It just, yes, there's a problem, but blame and shame is not the solution. Uh, Calling it for what it is fine, but we are all in it. So for example, this horrible data, which I mentioned many times, you take the same baby, dress the baby pink or blue, put them in a room and uh, uh, allow a uh, women to care for the baby for 20 or 30 minutes, measure their uh, political views and their uh, degree of commitment to, ver- to diversity, and then look to see how they treat the pink baby when it cries and the blue baby when it cries. Same baby. Pink baby's picked up. Blue baby's not picked up. Pink baby is comforted. Blue baby is not comforted. Pink baby isn't allowed to crawl away very far. Blue baby can crawl to the other side of the room. And on. And and by the way, how much does it correlate with the uh, political views and the kind of diversity commitments of the people? And this is an older study. Maybe we've changed some. Uh, The answer is approximately zero. Why? Because it flies under the radar screen so we're all part of a journey where this is a human journey it's not just a male or white or black, black or brown or uh, you know or uh, trans or it, it's all of us together and that doesn't mean oh i'm gender blind or oh i'm colorblind other people who say that are people with privilege because you haven't seen the dark side of that um you know, my daughter, Camille, is African-American. I mean, she's not going to say, oh, color doesn't matter. Uh, women are not going to say, oh, gender doesn't matter. Because they've been on the short end of the stick. Of it. So, but blame and shame, no, because it's all of us. And so that parenting role, can we get to a time where the blue babies get picked up? Would that be okay? You know, when they get comforted and the pink babies are allowed to crawl away, not irresponsibly. Could we do that? What would happen if we did that? My guess is, is we'd have a world that is more connected, uh, more kind, more compassionate. My guess is also the men wouldn't be dying early. Inside their suppressive narcissistic grabby ego based need to be the the best and all that kind of stuff, you, know, you want to see a distortion of it, just look at our political figures. I won't mention the Donald except I just did, but, you know just look and you'll see it you know this does that look healthy to you? It looks pretty darn male to me it does not look healthy so uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited that uh, time's up. Thank you. Not our time, but that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Thank you. you you've you often, you mentioned in communications that you feel like you have a megaphone to your mouth yeah. and, and I'm, if someone's going to have a megaphone, I'm glad it's you. So I, I appreciate what you said today and also just what you continue to say in, in other communities um, as, as well. So thank you for that. And, as we're sort of closing, I wanted to go back to this idea of, of this bridge you're creating uh, around ACT and CBT and, and psychology in general. And yeah. I guess I get curious, now that you've created the bridge, um, where is it going to take us? And and when you're gone, like where do you hope that we're all headed?
0: Well, if we take the same basic way of thinking, and extend it out to each other as professionals and to the larger needs of others. You know, I see a day where there's the divisions between the behaviorists and the cognitivists and between the cognitive behavioral people and the analytic people and those people and the existential people and those people and the humanistic people and those people and the systems people and those people and the prevention people, and on and on and on, enough, enough, make it stop. I see a day when the people who are interested in inter- intervention are able to look at processes that are transformational in human lives and do a kind of functional analysis person by person. I don't mean just a waving of the hand. I don't mean classic old style functional analysis, just direct tendencies. I mean that assessment will be something like, you know, uh, experience sampling where, you know, Several times during the day there's a few questions that are being asked when you come in after a couple weeks of it I know exactly what's moving you around. I've seen it happen to you I have a way of analyzing that even not just a Conceptual way but empirical way to that using complex networks and dynamical systems and things that are now available to us that weren't available 30 and 40 years ago and behavior therapy was trying to do this with just reinforcement principles and that we can let all these different processes play And by the way, the biologists, too, by the way, genetics and epigenetics and uh, brain science. And so what we're seeing happen right now, the behavior analysts who kind of were right in there with the behavior therapists, so you had the kind of uh, classical uh, uh, kind of SR types and then the more functional operant types in the earliest days, created behavior therapy and evidence-based therapy. But then they split. So, the behavior analysts now are discovering ACT and RFT, they're just, and they're, they're they're also linking it up to evolution science. I'll get there in a second. The third wave and second wave folks split. The miracle of Stefan Hoffman, who was like an arch enemy, you know, who's writing books like ACT is just uh, old wine and new bottles and all that kind of stuff. You know, we invited him to come to a world con uh, 10 years ago in Chicago, a world conference. And he laughed at our jokes and he saw the community. He didn't flip immediately. He didn't say, oh, no, I'm an act person. No. He started reading some of the philosophical work and realizing, man, these guys have different assumptions. That's interesting. He started looking at the process stuff. He and I started in our arguments, started realizing we had a common commitment to process and to function. And you know, when you reach out and you listen, when you connect with others, you know, your enemy might be your friend. And so what's going to happen, I think, is the first and second and third waves are going to come together, behavior analysis coming in. And then all of that I would like to see moved under a functional contextual view of biology, not a mechanistic push, pull, click, click. My The genes made me do it. The brain circuit made me do it. No, not like that. One that is organized across time and is sensitive to culture and situation and these differences we were just talking about. Well, who are the functional contextual biologists? It's a wing of the evolutionists and turns out some of them know that they really need the the development within the lifetime of the individual, not just because it's would be nice. But because it's changing the up and down, it's up and down regulating genes. Well, our conversation right now might be in every cell in your body several months from now by the particular genes that are up and down regulated by what we said in our conversation during this hour. And some of that can even be transmitted across generations. And some of that is involved in genetic accommodation over several generations. And that's just not fantasy in f- fruit fly models and things like that. You can show how some of these epigenetic regulations of genes and gene expression. So given that, the biologists realize holy beans, you know, environment and behavior is the way that uh, life turns, uh, 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 turns e- experience into biology environment behavior is is the driver so uh if you want to understand speciation if you want to understand individual differences you understand that you have to understand the psychological level even though that's not going to be passed on other than things like cultural practices quickly but it's passed on so i think the future that we're headed towards is one in which behavioral science are identifying the processes but they're nesting them inside a An evolutionary understanding. Uh, Can I give it, do we have enough time for me to give you an example of a study I'm doing that's Okay, well Stefan and I, along with um, Joe Sorocchi I mentioned earlier, our labs have, are going through a process right now uh, of identifying every single process that has functioned as a mediator in a randomized controlled trial of a psychological intervention and where the mediation was successful. We're reviewing 54,124 studies. We have a team of about 28 people to do it. What we'll end up with is probably around 800, 900 studies that actually have to be read and detailed and coded. So the 54,000 is one of those big search, lit search where anybody who has any, uh, you know, ever used the word mediation and so forth. Well, I did a quick and dirty version of this. Uh, And I organized it in a way that Stefan and I are now organizing our process-based therapy workshops. We have one coming up in Boston, by the way, if people want to check it out. And what we're doing is we, we call it the model of models. We're basically saying, here are the dimensions that we know are important to human beings, just based on the evidence. There are cognitive processes in that data set. There are emotional ones. Are effective ones. There are issues of self, there are issues of attention, there are issues of values and motivation, there are issues of uh, behavior. And then they're nested within biological issues in a smaller way and cultural and social issues in a larger way. And each one of those we're now plugging the existing evidence into was this a matter of increasing variation? Was this a matter of Uh, Fitting it to context Was this a matter of increasing selection Was this a matter of doing things That would retain what's learned In other words we're looking At our own science Evolutionarily And so far this thing is just falling Into Mm. the matrix very easily And so here's a way to say it We've been doing Applied evolution science And we have not known it Mm. And it's hidden in plain sight Inside our data And by the time we get there, do we need to quarrel about who's a behaviorist? Do we need to quarrel about who's a cognitivist or an existentialist or an analytic person? Just give us your measures, give us your terms, show us the data, we'll plug it in, and let it play, let all ideas play. And so the process-based therapy vision is a vision for reorganizing behavioral science itself And placing it properly under evolution science, essentially taking a functional contextual view and applying it at all scales, where variation, selection, retention, and context at the right dimension and level. Those six terms are the the guiding light of uh, behavioral science as it is for all the rest of the life sciences. Uh, So there's another Time's Up. You know, time's up for uh, to put Darwin and Skinner together. Mm. Uh, Skinner actually wanted to be put together, but he was thrown overboard for reasons mm. that evolution science now has changed so much that it's ready for this conversation. And so David and I just have a new book out that we're going to talk about later on this podcast of uh, evolution and contextual behavioral science. But that's the larger agenda. I'm sorry, again, for these long answers, but there are kind of big questions uh, my What I'm trying to do in my life is uh, help reorganize the place of behavioral science in the larger set of sciences. I know how grandiose that sounds. I'm not saying I can do it. I know I can't do it without hundreds of about thousands of people helping. But I can see the way forward. And not just me. Others see it. Mm-hmm. And together in community, let's see – can we do something that crazy, that bold, that transformational? That would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah.
1: Thank you. Well, we look forward to that, continuing that conversation about evolution science between you you and David Sloan Wilson and Debbie, probably in the next uh, few episodes coming up. Super. Well, thank you, Dr. Hayes. It's been an honor and a delight and um, just really wonderful for you to share your thoughts with us today. I really appreciate you taking the time on your birthday. Happy
0: birthday
1: <laughs> yeah. to, to speak well, yeah, with us. I
0: already us. celebrated it, but yeah. thank you, Diana. Yeah. This is really a fun conversation, even if it was a little uh, a little bit of the usual blah, blah, blah from the old bald guy.
1: We appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off The Clock.
2: You can find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter.
3: John Koo and Susie Stevens and special thanks to our creative producer Dr. Meg McKelvey